0: Well, a very happy Easter from me too. Um, it's wonderful to have come from the heights of Crow Hill down to the flatland um, of great Camborne again, but here we are um, to share communion together on this, this morning, this morning which ha- has changed history like no other event in the course of the history books has ever managed to do since. You pick any event, however significant, and it hasn't endured over 2,000 years with the same impact and influence and degree of celebration that Easter is still celebrated throughout the world by people who seek to follow Christ. So we're here with great purpose this morning. And you know, it's been quite a journey for us. If you've joined us for as much of Lent as you've been able to, you'll have traced the journey of the Israelites, God's first people, from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh through the four long decades, that's 40 years, in the desert until they reached the freedom of their own land. And what we've discovered in part is that the long period in the desert, that long journey in that barren place, was transformational for the people of Israel. It was there that they learned about character and how to live as the people of God. It was there that they learned that they had to become dependent on God in order to provide them even basics like food. And and we looked at the manna in the wilderness. It was in the desert place that the people of Israel received the law. And it was there, as I say, in the barrenness and bleakness of the desert that the tabernacle was built and carried round with God's people everywhere they went. That very physical sign and symbol of God's enduring presence physically with them. And more recently, over Holy Week, we have journeyed with Jesus to Jerusalem to face crucifixion. There have been so many ironies along the way as we have followed the events that lead up to Jesus' death. The sense over the whole week that the week which was to see the Messiah enthroned was actually the one that saw him killed. The sense that Jesus' capture and arrest came about because of Judas' betrayal when actually Jesus knew all along where he was headed. There was the false perception of the Pharisees that they had won the sham trial, which resulted in Jesus being condemned to death and a murderer, Barabbas, being spared. There was the false sense of control that the soldiers and officials must have felt over Jesus as they tortured and mocked him. And yet Jesus was in control all along. And finally, the false sense of perception that the crowds who had followed Jesus listened to his teaching and witnessed his miracles, that the story had ended in defeat on the cross. And also, the onlookers who saw a man being crucified with two criminals and must have placed Jesus in that same category when Jesus was there winning the ultimate victory and offer in his life to address the brokenness and sin in the world. And I mention these things because the power of Easter can be lost as we celebrate Easter year on year, because it becomes something that's familiar. The power of Easter can be lost in the familiarity of our celebrations of this life-world-changing event. We listen to the familiar scriptures. We sing of a green hill far away and of a wondrous cross. And the danger for us who try to follow Jesus with our lives as Lord is that we miss the invitation year on year to re-enter the narrative, to re-enter the story and to see from a sort of first-hand experience what members of the crowd, what people who saw Jesus enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, waving palm branches and hosannas ringing, what they would have seen in that moment. On the dusty streets of Jerusalem, on the slopes of Golgotha, what did people see that first Easter? And we're invited to re-enter that experience and to make it real for ourselves so that it doesn't just become a date in a calendar when we go through a certain number of prayers or readings or songs, but it becomes a celebration that, yes, our Lord has triumphed over death. He is risen indeed. But in our gospel reading from John this morning, we gain an insight which takes us back to the gritty emotion of Mary and the other disciples who are still reeling from seeing Jesus on the cross. And so if you've got your Bibles open, we're still in John chapter 20. Um, I forget the page number, but it's John chapter 20. Thank you. Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb early in order to complete the customary burial preparations, which she had been unable to complete because of the beginning of the Sabbath. In the previous chapter, 19, right at the end of chapter 19, the disciples had chosen the tomb because it was convenient given time was against them. And on the Sabbath, all work had to stop, even the burial preparations for those who had died. Hence why Mary comes up to the tomb this early to complete what she couldn't have completed before. But in verse 2, we have a shock on our hands. We find the discovery that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb as Mary had fully anticipated. And just as I talked this morning, note that point that I made about re-entering the story. Put yourself back into Mary's situation as she approaches the tomb and finds that the body of her Lord, which she fully expected to be there without any shadow of a doubt, um, is no longer there. So, so do that exercise in your head as, as I talk. Um, in fact, the note of the, we, we need to note the plural, we. Mary was not alone. The other Gospels tell us that she had female companions with her. However, at this stage, and as you might deduce from her running to tell the other disciples of what she has seen, Mary does not have resurrection on her mind, but robbery. And so she rushes to get Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who most scholars seem to um, identify as John, um, the beloved um, disciple. And Simon Peter, and we'll go with John for this morning. You can challenge me on my biblical scholarship afterwards if you choose to. Simon Peter and John come running with Mary back to the empty tomb um, to see what she has told them. But what a mixture of emotions we have here this morning in this gospel passage. Let's have a look at some of the emotions that are at play here. We have grief. Well, of course, Jesus has only just died. It's still very raw, raw and real to the disciples and to those who had followed Jesus. Uh, and there's also panic that Jesus' body might have been stolen by grave robbers. There's desperation as they run to the empty tomb, especially on the part of Simon and John, who have been told third-hand about the news that the the tomb is empty. And in desperation now, they're running to see um, for themselves what, what has happened. There's confusion, and of course there would be. O- only days ago have they, so only hours ago, have they, have they buried Jesus, laid him to rest in the tomb, and now there's all this uncertainty as to what has happened. Where is he? And there might be the smallest sense of hope not in their conscious minds, because we know through the passage this morning that they weren't consciously aware at this point of resurrection, but there might be the smallest bit of subconscious hope that something positive may have happened, that it might not be grave robbers, um, that there might be something even more miraculous that has happened. And finally, there's, of course, distress, because it would be distress, wouldn't it? I've had the unfortunate experience of Um, being involved um, in situations where graves have had to be excommunicated, have had to be um, uh, raised again. And that is an incredibly distressing time for the families um, of people who have to have their loved ones exhumed. And, And so you can imagine what it must be like for Mary, for Simon Peter and for John as they start to wonder in distress what has actually happened to Jesus So grief, panic, desperation, confusion, a little bit of hope and distress as Mary, Simon and John approach the tomb. Simon Peter and John, um, most likely um, Simon Peter rushes into the tomb, but John stays outside. And as Simon Peter rushes in, he not only observes the absence of Jesus' body, but notes that the grave clothes had been folded up and placed on the floor. Now, Simon Peter, like Mary Magdalene, hasn't remembered the prophecies either, as we are told they didn't understand the scripture. The scene reinforces for me the sense of God's unfolding plan, that the father who sent his son into the world was never out of control of these events. Jesus, yes, had to endure agony on the cross, but he had to do it in order to realise God's plan, that all people might know freedom from sin and new life in God. This morning, as we look to the empty tomb... Do we see the scene of grave clothes chucked everywhere and imagine that Jesus did not come back to life, came back to life in a frenzied exertion where grave clothes were dispatched with and thrown all over the floor and, and the stone was what was with great physical effort rolled away from the entrance to the tomb in an attempt to escape. Perhaps this is partly what Mary, Simon Peter and John didn't understand if there had been robbers, you see, you'd expect it to be messy, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd expect it to be disordered. If, if homes are burgled, it's generally not the case that they're left in a neat state afterwards. In fact, one of the first indicators that um, when we see news items about burglaries um, is items strewn across floors. And, and it's that disorder and, and physical chaos that is often the clue that something is amiss. And surely, if there was a grave robber, then that might be what, um, what Simon Peter and John and Mary Magdalene were anticipating seeing. But the actual scene is quite different. The reality is not what they expected. Jesus rises from the dead, folds the grave clothes, The angels attend to the stone covering the tomb. This was all planned. This was all intended to happen. This was what God had planned from the beginning of time. And this was the unfolding of God's plan and purpose for the world. The passage now moves on. Simon Peter and John have gone back home, yet Mary Magdalene remains outside the tomb, weeping. And the word used for weeping in this particular case means to wail. It's a loud lament. It's not quietly crying in a corner. It's it's wailing. It's lamenting and streams of tears. And then she notices, looking back into the tomb, the two angels sitting where Jesus' head and feet would have been. Angels inquire of Mary why she is weeping, and she tells them of her fear that had come and removed her body. Note that the angels don't respond because Jesus is already behind her and again asks her the question, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Senses can so often be overcome by emotions, can't they? And Mary is distraught. Under any other circumstance, without her eyes full of tears, she may have looked and seen who it was asking her the question. Without the sound of her own wailing, she might have recognised that familiar voice of Jesus that she had listened to so much over the last few years. But with all the emotion of this morning's early discovery, she repeats the point she would have made to the disciples, Simon Peter and and John, and to the angels sitting in the tomb. And she now repeats it to Jesus that, you know, she doesn't know where the body of her Lord has been taken. And she cries, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus responds, Mary. What's in a name? So, so very much. The point of recognition was the point at which Jesus used Mary's name. It embodies the relationship, a name that we have with someone, it is the word that identifies who we are and allows us to be recognized. In this instance, it cuts through everything, and as Jesus says her name, Mary, for the first time in this whole passage, Mary begins to see and believe what is actually taking place. Looking, hearing the man she believed to be the gardener, now Mary knows that she's in the presence of her Lord, risen from the grave, Scripture fulfilled. And John's account of the resurrection is this wonderfully intense interweaving of seeing and believing, or, or, or more specifically, not seeing um, or believing, or maybe believing yet not seeing, and not being able to believe um, that Jesus is there um, or understand. Mary saw the empty tomb and believed grave robbers to be the cause of Jesus' missing body. Simon Peter and John saw the empty tomb and yet did not understand the scriptures that would, have been, that would have explained what they were seeing. We so often fall into the trap of assuming that things can be self-evident when actually they are far from be, this is far from being the case. We often have fixed ideas or, or even limited experience that forms our perception of what has taken place, of what we're seeing, of what we're hearing. And sometimes we lock ourselves into our own pattern of thoughts that X and Y must equal Z. In this morning's passage, the empty tomb must mean grave robbers, surely. And the problem with this uh, with this limited experience uh, and self-evident realisation of things uh, uh, and, and our own prejudices and, and, uh, and ways of seeing things, is that we cloud ourselves to the true reality of life. We prevent ourselves from going beyond that which is superficial and starting to explore what's going on beneath the surface, Mary and the disciples didn't see Jesus as early as perhaps they could have because they were seeing the empty tomb through the eyes of of what must be self-evident to them, that that this was the work of tomb raiders or, or grave robbers. Fixed ideas and limited experience can cause us to fail to see what God is doing in our lives and in the life of his church. And I believe that this part of the new life and kingdom that Jesus invites us to embrace, and a life um, in the kingdom which goes beyond being superficial, which throws away assumptions, a new life which isn't understood through fixed ideas or constrained by the limits of our own experience or understanding, where to achieve peace doesn't mean go into war, where poverty is understood to be far more complex than just getting people off benefits, and where Christians looking to Jesus as the source of resurrection life are no longer hindered in their recognition of who Jesus is and what he has called his church to be, to his glory. Amen. Should we just pause for a moment and just offer these reflections to God? Father, we can't promise you that we wouldn't have done the same thing as Mary, Simon, Peter and John. We can't assure you that we'd have had eyes open to see the reality of what had taken place, that we'd have remembered the ancient scriptures, that you would rise again. And so, Father, like your early disciples, we ask you to take the scales from our eyes, to uncloud our minds and unburden our hearts. That limited experience, false assumptions, even sometimes prejudices, Lord, wouldn't get in the way of us seeing your plan and purpose for our lives and the life of Camborne Church. Help us to depend on you, the true source of our life. Amen. Amen.